This is the Good Judge Men Podcast. Hello, folks, and welcome to the Good Judgment Podcast. I am Wade Padgett, Superior Court Judge from the Augusta Judicial Circuit. And I'm Tane Kell, Superior Court Judge in the Cobb Judicial Circuit. Today, it is May 3rd, 2019. We're here in awesome Athens, Georgia, at the University of Georgia uh, Podcast Center. God's country. Located in the law school. Today, we are going to discuss the topic of merger. Now, some of you may wonder, wow, that seems like a really small topic. Why would you discuss it? Well, Tane, why don't you tell everybody why we need to discuss merger so badly? Well, the appellate courts have told us repeatedly and increasingly more loudly that we keep getting merger wrong. And so Wade and I thought that because they keep telling us repeatedly and increasingly loudly that we're getting it wrong, that maybe we should just do a quick refresher on what merger is and what it really means. Now, to be fair, Tane and I have done some presentations on merger both together and separately at prior Superior Court conferences, but obviously we have not done it effectively or effectively enough. To be fair, there are times where merger can be very easy and very straightforward. There are times that it can be really sort of complicated and hard to see. So what we're going to start with is an understanding of the statute. The applicable code section for merger is OCGA section 16-1-7, which provides, when the same conduct of an accused may establish the commission of more than one crime, the accused may be prosecuted for each crime. He may not, however, be convicted of more than one crime if, number one, one crime is included in the other, or, number two, the crimes differ only in that one is defined to prohibit a designated kind of conduct generally and the other to prohibit a specific instance of conduct. Now, that's the law school definition. There's one, there's one piece to this that I'm afraid that some of us get wrong, and that is, what is a conviction? A conviction is not a verdict. They are two different things. A party can only be convicted of one crime for that particular level of conduct. Conviction means a verdict or a guilty plea, a written judgment, in other words, a sentence, that is filed with the clerk of court. So you can go to trial on all the charges. That doesn't prohibit a trial. You can get, get a verdict from the jury on all the charges. That doesn't prohibit that. What it prohibits is you sentencing for more than one crime for that same particular conduct. And I think what's really important there for people to remember, Wade, is that the issue of merger doesn't arise for the trial court until after there has been a verdict by the jury and sentencing is being considered. Also, merger is not waived by a guilty plea. So it would also apply if there was a guilty plea. You can't waive your right to complain about merger. And we see that in a lot of the habeas corpus cases that come post-sentencing. But let's, let's move on and let's talk more about merger nuts and bolts. Now, the, since 2006, the appellate courts have given us what is called the required evidence test. Basically, that test has been set forth as follows, and this is the formal legal appellate decision definition of required evidence test. And, the, then, and then Wade's going to make it really simple for you. I'm going to try. <laughs> the applicable rule is that where the same act or transaction 
constitutes a violation of two distinct statutory provisions. The test to be applied to determine whether there are two offenses or only one is whether each provision requires proof of a fact which the other does not. Now that particular case that where that quote came from is Colbreth, C-U-L-B-R-E-A-T-H, V-State. Remember everybody, we are going to give you access to our outlines which are not pretty, you know, sentences and periods and semicolons and all of those things. It's just an outline, but all of these citations are going to be available to you offline, so you don't need to worry about writing them down. Just know that's the Colbreth case. Excuse me. Colbreth case. Say that three times fast. Yeah, very Wade. hard. Colbreth case that came out in 2014. So, Tane, I want to talk about... Um, the most obvious examples that we get wrong, and when I say we, this is not like a nurse saying we should take our medicine. This is we being I get it wrong too. You probably do as well. Yes. Things, though, that we can absolutely avoid in the context of merger. Well, wait, I think I've got a really great example for that. And uh, it is that where there is only one dead person, there can only be one conviction for murder. That's what Wade and I like to call the one dead guy rule. So if there's only one dead person, there can only be one form of homicide. Now, again, remember, a conviction is the written sentence uh, and the verdict together. So if the jury convicts someone of both malice murder and felony murder, and there's only one dead person, you can only have one uh, conviction for, for one form of homicide. The other is vacated by operation of law. So <clears throat> if the indictment charges both malice murder and felony murder, and there is a verdict uh, for each of those, then the felony murder conviction would be the one that was vacated by operation of law. So in that same vein, Tane, hey, I didn't know that was going to rhyme. In that same vein, Tane... A defendant charged with vehicular homicide in the first degree cannot be convicted of both the vehicular homicide and the DUI or reckless or reckless driving or passing the school bus, etc., the underlying crime that is required to prove vehicular homicide in the first degree if it's an element of the crime. In other words, you have to have been have caused this death while DUI. You can't have a conviction for the first-degree vehicular homicide, and the DUI. They merge. Correct. What about, tell them about less safe DUI and excessive blood alcohol DUI. I think we probably all know they merge. Which way do they merge? Sure. Under most normal scenarios, only one conviction for DUI can be had in a single event. The two offenses merge into, into the excessive blood alcohol offense. Because the defendant's, the court has said, that because the defendant's conviction based on conduct violating OCGA section 40-6-391A5 as driving with a prohibited blood alcohol level 
poses the more serious risk of injury to property or the public, the court affirmed that the conviction, the conviction and reversed the defendant's conviction under OCGA section 40-6-391A1. And that case uh, that made that determination is Partridge, P-A-R-T-R-I-D-G-E versus the state, and also uh, the case of Canellas, C-A-N-E-L-A-S versus the state, and those are cited in our materials. All right. Fun fact, I guess, or special fact that we need to make sure everybody's aware of. So a fun fact or a special fact, that does not apply if one of the charges is DUI child endangerment. That's right. That's one of those special exceptions that the uh, legislature has carved out because I guess they think those two offenses are both so egregious uh, that, uh, that there shouldn't be an overlap in a merger. So, Tane, I want to look at merger differently because we obviously, despite the appellate court's great attempts to help us understand the required evidence test, I think we get lost. And I think that we make determinations that intellectually make some sense, but factually they just don't and they don't comply with the law. Well, please, please, Wade, make it easier for me, because I can tell you that when I've read these cases on merger, frequently uh, it, it is very confusing to me what exactly the court wants me to apply and how they want me to apply these tests. So the very definition of merger starts with a basic phrase, when the same conduct of an accused, dot, dot, dot. That's called so, an ellipsis for those of you out in the audience. Oh, see, show off. So begin your analysis of merger with the issue of time. Were the acts that we are talking about or examining committed in a single act or transaction, or do the facts suggest that more than one act or transaction was involved? Can you say that again? Wait a minute. That, that seems to make a lot more sense. So you start with looking at the facts. Were the acts that we are examining committed in a single transaction, or do the facts suggest that it was more than one act or transaction? If there are two different acts, the offenses do not merge. Stop analysis. Don't even get into the required evidence test any further because you answered the first phrase with, this was not a single act or transaction. On the other hand, if there was a single act or transaction, then you have to look at what has been called the required evidence test that we will discuss in more detail in a, in, in a little while. I just want to focus right now on where do we start a merger analysis? We start with time. So let me see if I understand this, Wade. So if, if for example, if uh, I pull out a gun and I point it at you and I tell you to get in my car, and you get in my car, and then we drive all the way across town to your house, and I make you unlock the house, and we go into your house, and I tell you to give me the money out of your safe, and you give me the money out of your safe. Is that one transaction, or is that two transactions, and would that merge, or would that not merge? So when people start asking, what is the definition of a single act or transaction, you mm -hmm. would think that that would be relatively obvious. The, the, the appellate court said, look at the deliberate interval test. In other words, was there a deliberate interval between thing one and thing two? So in the example that you gave, and there was actually a case that wasn't exactly on point, but, but fairly close. In that case, there is a fact that happened at place one 
And then there is a fact that happened at place two, a different act. So the original aggravated assault might merge with the kidnapping. I don't want to get involved in that just yet. Right. Because you made somebody get in the car and there's an aspiratation element and all of those things. That's but a neat word, aspiratation. Yeah, I thought that's when you have to use that little rubber ball to get the snot out of your child's nose. That's aspiratation, right? No, that's aspiration. Sorry. <laughs> I, have, I, have, sorry. I have no idea. So anyway, so when you, when you made somebody get in your car at gunpoint, that could be an aggravated assault. That could be a kidnapping. But you didn't steal anything until we replaced B. You can intellectually say in your mind, thing one had ended when thing two started. And so that is the deliberate interval com component to the merger rule in, in trying to figure out if there's a single act or two. So, Wade, let me ask it this way. When we're, as judges, analyzing whether there's a merger, let's remember that we're post-trial. The jury's already entered its verdict on the various acts that are alleged, that are alleged in the, um, in the uh, indictment. And then we're trying to figure out if any of those acts merge. We're looking at the facts as presented at trial at that point, not the facts that are alleged in the indictment. Is that right? Correct. Now, and to be fair, this could also be in a plea scenario. Yes, sir. And nobody else is looking at this. To be fair, nobody else is looking. The judge is almost expected to, to be the higher authority here and to look, do, do any of these things merge? And more, more often than not, your lawyers will look at you like, first, they have no idea what you're talking about. Second, well, we weren't going to argue law because this was a guilty plea. So we were going to argue passion and facts and compassion and all of those things. So we don't know. So no, judge, they don't merge. You have a duty, actually, to look at this. Because what will happen is if this case ever appears in front of appellate, appellate court, even if nobody complained about merger, they will remand the case to you for merger. Well, and let me let me tell you what I do in that circumstance where that little voice in the back of my head, you know, says, hey, it looks like there might be a merger issue here. I like to turn to the lawyers and go, hey, is there a merger issue here? And then just watch the fun that happens after that. It is usually just bedlam because they just don't know. And they haven't really thought about it because it was a guilty plea. They thought the issue on facts and charges had already been resolved. Well, and as you said, Wade, the burden is really on us. And, and, and truthfully, in terms of helpful hints, that is the point at which, quite frequently, I'll take a break and I'll go and step off the bench and draw a flowchart if I need to or call a friend like, oh, I don't know, Wade Padgett, whose num <laughs> number I will be happy to give to all of you on the air if I need to. And... Um, uh, it, but I'll take a break and I'll try to figure this out because sometimes when you're sitting on the bench, it's really difficult to look at this, th these things and say, okay, deliberate interval, you know, how much time passed? What have they told me in the factual recitation, which is usually pretty small and, and, and very little information is given to you. Um, so anyway, uh, you may want to ask some more questions too. Absolutely. So I want to go through some examples that I hope will help us with the, um, the concept of merger, and I want to start easy instead of the, the law school hard ones. So, Tane, I point a gun at a victim, and I say, give me your wallet. Yeah. I take your wallet, and I take off, as the, as, as the kids say. Is that a single act or transaction? It is indeed. There's no deliberate in interval there, Wade. 
Um, although there are separate identifiable acts there, it's all part of one continuous transaction in which uh, there's r- literally no pause between the sequence of events that are occurring and the, and the various crimes that could be identified in there. Okay, so same scenario, except now I take the victim's wallet, cell phone, and his car keys and steal his car. How many armed robberies? You're still talking about one armed robbery, Wade, because there's no deliberate interval between all of those things being taken. The fact that you took multiple articles is no different than if you asked me for my money and I handed you five $20 bills. That's not five separate thefts. That's one transaction. That would be a unicorn if I had five $20 bills. But anyway, (laughs) all right. So doesn't your mom still fold those bills up and put them in your shoe in case you get lost like she used to? Yeah, I didn't think you were going to tell people. All right. You got one for me? Yeah. What about in that same scenario, everything is the same except you take the wallet and then you begin to flee. And while you're fleeing, you look over your shoulder and shoot at the victim. Okay. So factually, I think everyone can see how the shooting of the weapon would constitute a separate aggravated assault from the one that I committed when I first pointed the weapon at the victim and intended to rob that person. There was a deliberate interval. There is some fact that I can intellectually, honestly say happened between the armed robbery and the second aggravated assault. Those offenses would not merge. Well, what about this, Wade? What if you shoot at the victim and you miss, and then you shoot at the victim a second time and the victim is hit? Is that one aggravated assault? There's no deliberate intervals between the two shots. Now, to be fair, intellectually, you can say, pull trigger once, miss, let go, pull trigger twice, hit. So there was something different between the two. But that, again, reinforces it's not is there a separate act. It is is there a deliberate interval between the acts that give you a reason to believe that more than one crime was committed. So in that scenario, they would not merge. And that's basically the same facts as in the Donaldson case that we cited in the materials, correct? Correct. That's a 2017 case from the Supreme Court. Now, so let's take a look at this Williams case. This is Williams versus State, 332 Georgia Appeals, 805, 2015 case. The defendant pointed a handgun at the victim. The victim pushed it away. But that is an aggravated assault, the pointing of a weapon. Right. The defendant struck the victim with the gun, and they eventually tussled over the gun. That's I love a, that that's word. That's a great word, yeah, tussled. tussled. Yeah, that's awesome. The defendant then shot the victim with that same gun, causing the victim to have the bullet lodged in his spine, God forbid, aggravated battery. Under these facts, the aggravated assault was completed when the gun was pointed at the victim. A new factual scenario then occurred moments later when the gun was used to shoot the victim. There was a deliberate interval between the pointing of the gun at the victim's head initially and the eventual shooting of the victim. Does that make sense? It does. But like Wade said at the beginning, some of these fact scenarios are pretty complicated, and you as the trial judge are going to have to make some judgment calls sometimes. What I would say to you in these cases, though, is if you decide that there is no merger, 
it is certainly appropriate and uh, and recommended that you put on the record what the reasoning is and the factual basis is that you're not merging. So if your determination in that scenario is that there was a deliberate interval between the time the gun was originally pointed, there was the fighting over the gun or the tussling as the court called it, and then there was the shot with the aggravated battery, always best to put that on the record so that it's very clear to the appellate court why you thought there was a deliberate interval. You know, Tane, you're making a good point about how the facts really matter because there are some of these cases that at first glance you say, well, that's exactly the same fact pattern as over here, and they had two different results. So let's talk about some of these cases where the facts really matter, and that usually involves where an incident where there are multiple injuries inflicted during a single attack. So you want to take this first one? Well, sure. Um, the courts have said when multiple injuries are inflicted on a single victim in quick succession and the defendant is convicted of both aggravated assault and murder, deciding whether there was aggravated assault independent of the fatal assault requires the court to consider, quote, both the order and timing of the assaults. And that's the Sears versus the state case. And that's basically what Wade and I have been talking about here is that, um, You've got to consider the timing and the order of when these crimes happen. And again, whether there was some hesitation, some stop in the action, something that deliberately separated um, those incidents. And we're going to talk about a case that literally came out this last week from the Supreme Court called Outler, O-U-T-L-E-R, a Jefferson County case. And, and there, that fact is almost, those facts are almost identical to what happened in Outler, and there was an entirely different outcome in that case. But let's let's keep going on this issue of where there's a single attack, multiple injuries, and let's not leave this until we've got this worked out because I think these can be some of the most difficult merger decisions that we have. So assume like we had in the Edwards case, the 301 Georgia 822 2017 case, where a victim suffers a series of injuries inflicted by a single assailant in rapid succession each injury does not constitute a separate assault. Separate convictions, here's that magic word again, separate convictions for both malice murder and aggravated assault of a single victim are authorized, however, where the evidence shows that the defendant committed an aggravated assault independent of the act that caused the victim's death. To, to authorize a separate conviction, there must be a deliberate interval, that phrase again, there must be a deliberate, inter deliberate interval separating the infliction of the initial non-fatal injury from the infliction of the subsequent fatal injury. What that tells you, Tane, is that you've got to have some facts, probably more than the medical examiner saying this person was shot and this person was stabbed. You're going to have to have somebody to tell you what order all of those things happened. And if it's just a two-person and we found the body and whatever, there's not a fact witness to the actual assault, it's almost always going to merge, I would think. Yeah, I think that's right, Wade. And I also think that, again, going back to what I was saying before, when you are deciding whether there is merger and or whether there's not merger, and particularly where you decide that there is not a merger, use of the actual phrase deliberate interval in your determination of the merger is going to be critical with respect to what the uh, appellate court ultimately finds. You know, I've had some people argue in front of me Look, Judge, there had to have been a deliberate interval unless he, unless you assume this person who committed the crime was effectively an octopus or something and was hitting while shooting, there had to be a deliberate interval. 
That's not the test. The test is, is there any evidence, positive, affirmative evidence of a deliberate interval? Otherwise, they merge. Now, when you're only left with the medical examiner, there are all kind of cases. The Coleman case, the White case, the Drain case, where there was just a, a, a medical examiner who testified there were two different kinds of injuries. If there was no other evidence, they merged. But where there was other evidence where, quote-unquote, it took the victim a long time to fall, whatever that meant, after being shot, before being beaten, there wouldn't be merger then. That There was some evidence to support a deliberate interval. And it's usually going to be evidence that comes, as you said, from someone other than the medical examiner who's determining cause of death and extent of injuries. It's going to be an eyewitness, or it's going to be someone who's able to testify exactly how the sequence of events occurred. Let's assume just real quick where a victim was killed receiving 25 stab wounds. So is that 25 counts of aggravated assault? Because there's, again, the imaginary deliberate interval. I had to hit you with the knife, pull it out, hit you with the knife. So does that mean two? And the, and the law that, that came out of that is, once again, if there is not somebody who can say affirmatively that there was an interval, a deliberate interval, then you can only have one assault. It's one crime spree, as they call it. Now, assume the same, same facts, but there is some evidence that there were a few stab wounds. Defendant walked around the house and stole things and then came back and stabbed some more after they realized you were still alive. In that scenario, that's a deliberate interval, but there must be some evidence of that, affirmative evidence. There was a recent case that came out that you and I were talking about, and I can't remember the name of it, but um, the, uh, the defendant had walked into a house, shot multiple people, uh, chased the main uh, person that he was uh, going after into the bedroom, killed them, then walked back out into the living room and found that one of the people he had shot was still alive and crawling toward the door, grabbed them by the clothing, pulled them up, and delivered the fatal shot to the head. In that circumstance, I think it could easily be argued, although it wasn't a case that ended with a question of merger, but I think in that scenario, there certainly would have been a deliberate interval uh, such that you could have found both an aggravated assault or aggravated battery and a felony murder. And so, and so it, you know, you, that, that particular case you were talking about, there was somebody else who witnessed it, unbeknownst right. to the defendant. They didn't know that person was hiding in the house. So that person could establish those facts. But it would have to be something, again, other than simply the medical examiner. So let's move on. Let's move on. So now we've decided we're going to start with making a deliberate interval determination. Was there a single act or not a single act? So what if there was no deliberate interval? So what if there is no deliberate interval between the commission of one act and the other? You have now necessarily found that that crime occurred in a single act of transaction, going all the way back to where we've started this. That's the definition of merger, that if it is a single act or transaction, now you proceed with the remainder of 1617. And let me say one thing about that, Wade, too. Um, the appellate courts, basically, in most of the uh, pronouncements that they've made about merger, they reverse the test from the way you and I are looking at it here. And I think it's much more simplified if you first um, analyze whether it is a single act or transaction before you go 
into the required evidence test, which is what the next uh, phase of this is called. So I, I would encourage you to look at that uh, exactly the way Wade and I are talking about uh, in making an analysis of merger. Folks, that's the end of part one of our discussion of merger, but please be sure and stay tuned for part two of the podcast um, because that's where we'll get into uh, some of the second part of this test on merger. The required evidence test. Is that what that's called? That's required evidence test. Thank you. Thanks for listening, folks. Thanks for listening to the Good Judge Men Podcast.